Neuropathways, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring the latest research discoveries and clinical advances in the fields of neurology, neurosurgery, neurorehab, and psychiatry. In the United States, it is estimated that 1 to 3 million people suffer from postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, or POTS. And there is mounting evidence that the number of individuals afflicted with this disease has grown and continues to grow with the arrival of the SARS-CoV-2. In today's episode of Neural Pathways, we're discussing the often challenging diagnosis and management of POTS. I'm your host, Glenn Stevens, neurologist, neuro-oncologist in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute, and joining me for today's conversation is Dr. Robert Wilson. Dr. Wilson is a neurologist in Cleveland Clinic's Neuromuscular Center. Rob, welcome to Neural Pathways. Thanks for having me. So, Rob, during my PhD almost 40 years ago, I hate to admit that, um, my PhD was on orthostatic intolerance. Uh, I'm not sure if you uh, know that or not, but I studied orthostatic intolerance, and we were mostly interested in orthostasis related to zero-g gravity. So we worked with the space program, and our interest was when people go to space, they get very compliant, uh, they don't have gravity, so when they come back to Earth, when they stand up, the blood pools in the legs, they're very compliant, it doesn't get pushed back to the heart, and they pass out. And we are looking at mechanisms whereby we could get the blood to go back to the heart and and maintain uh, orthostasis in these patients. And the other PhD candidate with me ended up uh, becoming an astronaut and went up in the shuttle uh, and did some of our our experiments in the in the shuttle. So it was quite exciting. Uh, but now we move forward. Now I don't do any of that, of course. Uh, and I'm glad that that we have you to do this. Uh, but take us through uh, the different types of POTS or orthostatic intolerance. Uh, you know, what is it that you do and, and uh, what's the disorder that you see? You know, it's interesting. We'll, we'll get to that. But I always reference the astronauts when I talk to the patients to get them to understand orthostatic disorders because how gravity is relevant for them not to have a concept um, for this disorder and why um, it's important and that and the early astronauts and how exercise matters and um, these concepts. Um, and I'm actually a neurocologist fellowship trained. I did neurooncology for years and I learned about orthostatic disorders from really mainly working with people who have sort of chronic disease aftermath and oncology treatments, late effects when I was at Penn and CHOP. So that's how I learned about. It. So you and I are very maybe mirrored more than we realize. So mm-hmm. I was glad to be with you today. So your question is about um, the sort of the types of POTS, right? Yes. You know, and it's interesting. It's probably more than we realize. I mean, generally, there's sort of big three groups. Um, as a neurologist, there's the neuropathic POTS, which we always talk about, which is that more of that neuropathy group. They have um, often associated with small fiber neuropathy. They're the, the low blood pressure types that we see. Um, often we'll find them a clinical exam. Um, when they come in, they have low blood pressure. You might actually see if you do bedside orthostatics, they drop their blood pressure. They're the ones who find them more conventional in our in our learning and our knowledge of practice that you'll see they have the blood pressure changes. Many of the POS patients will not drop their blood pressure. They might you might find things on clinical exam that they have more conventional 
um, small fiber neuropathy findings on the neurology exam. Um, you know, their testing might show on skin or biopsy. We have you have the opportunity to get a QZART in your community. You might find abnormalities. Those are those patients that we probably, as neurologists, whoever might listen to this, we might understand as the more conventional orthostatic patient. They also might have um, the skin color changes that we all sort of know associate with with like the blue legs or red legs, you know, they're fatigued or lightheaded, they may faint. That's the neuropathic POTS, which are often associated with sometimes autoimmune, Sjogren's, you know, celiac, chronic disease aftermath, um, sometimes airlos, downlos. Um, and then we also have that sort of what we call hyperadrenergic POTS, which are the ones I think that probably we see a lot at the clinic, the patients who maybe come to us who may get diagnosed or have those sort of mishmash of symptoms, more of that baroreceptor dysregulation. They're much more jittery, probably ones that are more challenging for people to handle because their symptoms can be misunderstood as anxiety, they're jittery, they're nervous, they have digestion, they have brain fog, they have hard to focus, their heart rates are dysregulated. They might not have as much fainting. They can actually faint from high heart rate, low cardiac output. Um, they might not drop their blood pressure. They may have moments of hypertension. Um, we might find elevated catecholamine levels in their blood tests. Um, and then there's this other entity, which I find very fascinating and mysterious, the hypovolemic, which may have a different mechanism. There's sort of three groups, but you know, there's probably more than we realize. And a lot of the patients might have some overlap, I personally believe. Um, and you know, and there's probably much more to it. And when people ask that question, I always think it's more of future research opportunities. And these patients probably are not as so siloed into these three boxes or three circles. They're much by Venn diagram. And they probably might evolve into other things over times. So I was very excited to hear you say the word baroreceptor because all my work was on baroreceptors. I haven't oh. heard baroreceptors for some period of time, but very excited to hear that. Well, that's an important concept. I think the way to think about these patients with orthostatic disorders, and that'll be the one thing for any clinician is when you think about them, think about the baroreceptor. That's one of the physiologic things. It gets dysregulated. It becomes propagated. It becomes automatic. That's how people get head injury can get baroreceptor dysregulation. It gets very sort of like a circuit. And, um, and it's a very, very important mindful space for the clinician to think about these patients. It explains why their heart rates get sustained, why these drugs make sense that we use for these patients, a lot of the mindfulness work it does. And it, it's a very important concept to think about these patients and why even these patients in a dysregulated state can have moments of hypertension personal orthostatic tendencies can still do the baroreceptor dysregulation, can most hypertension. Some of the colleagues we work with at the clinic are actually even sometimes our kidney specialists and our cardiologists or hypertensive experts. So that's an important thing to think about. And the people I work really closely with, we think about baroreceptor, baroreceptor dysregulation often. Yeah, I think the most challenging patients sometimes I see in the hospital on consults are those that are having trouble maintaining upright posture because their blood pressure drops and then when they lie down, they have supine hypertension. Oh, yeah. And there's actually patients who might have these really unique disorders of orthostatic hypertension, we'll see, and very other things that are all over the board. The ones that I see in my practice, I don't see people who just drop their blood pressure 30 points 
when they stand, that they're easy to manage. They might respond to medications, but I see them more the baroreceptors regulation, which they are high their blood pressure, then they drop, and then they're up and down, and their heart rates are all dysregulated. Um, those are much more challenging ones. And clinically, their symptoms are very all over the board, and they can be uh, um, uh, I would say mishmash of symptoms and can um, be very hard for people to manage because their symptoms are very big and expansive. And um, one moment it can be one way, the next moment it be another way. But if you think of the baroreceptor, how it works and how it can do, you, you can get an easier way to approach these patients and a friendlier way to get a feel for them. So if I'm a uh internist, a family physician listening to the podcast, and I think, boy, I've got somebody that uh, has these types of problems. How do I decide? Do I send it to the cardiologist? I think there might be a rhythm problem, or do I send it to the neurologist, or should I send it to both? Or what do you, what do we have for these people? You know, I think the thing is, it's a really great question. I think these patients can be, first thing, I think the important thing is at least think about this first. I th- you know, I feel for the primary doctors, the internists, the pediatricians, you know, as neurologists, we have the luxury of more time. You know, these patients are coming in, they're dizzy, they're jittery, they're nervous, they feel anxious, they have digestive issues, only about 10% or so might faint, they're dizzy, they're had, their lives are often derailed. So the people in primary care are frontline and they don't have the time. So I think sometimes is they might need to look at first, what are their best resources locally? You know, we're in a very luxurious place at the clinic. We have a lot of people we can pull to. So sometimes it depends on what who they have locally. Are the cardiologists probably more adapt for syncope or sort of these more you know, diverse symptoms? Is it the neurologist? Who are their best resources for these type of big symptoms, these um, diverse symptoms? If you do have a concern of a rhythm, a cardiac rhythm, you do want to have someone at least seen by a cardiologist at times. You know, I do think people need to follow their clinical judgment. Um, if you do think there is a lot of neurologic symptoms, you're not certain, you do want to have someone seen by a neurologist. Sometimes it is both of those specialists because you are hitting a point. It might sometimes seem like a cardiac issue. Ultimately, it is behaving like a neurologic process. The baroreceptor and how the brain gets involved, the neurocircuitry, I do think it's a neuro process ultimately. But I guess you can see that if the patient says it feels like my heart's beating really fast, uh, somebody would interpret that as they're having some type of conduction problem and sending them to a cardiologist. Yes, yes. A lot of our patients have seen numerous cardiologists and you have to be very sympathetic for what the people locally in their local communities go through and what resource they have. And um, I had a patient in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan where the local cardiologist has done a spectacular job and has had a very neurologic, um, sophisticated approach. So uh, you mentioned some of the different types of POTS that we can see, which then make some of the things more obvious, but who's at risk for POTS? I love that question. That's personally my obsession with the times that we live in recently, because I always became an OB guy and I uh, changed neurology last minute. And most of my patients are women. I actually like women's health. Um, so most of my patients are women. And it does seem like even what we're going through with COVID, we'll get into that a little, but most of the patients we see post-COVID POTS are women. Um, it does seem to be a more female demographic, young, which seems might raises lots of questions about could there be something about 
hormonal inflammatory states. Women have more pro-inflammatory states. You know, there's some data about even head injury with women doing worse in some literature. Could it be more autoimmune aspects? You know, so there's a lot of things we see about young women um, and that aspect. We do see a lot of times people then with post-viral syndromes. We knew when COVID happened, we were going to see some stuff. I've been doing some grand rounds with post-COVID pots, and I called it same script, different casts, because we knew like mono was associated with this, and we see with mycoplasm and some other infections, post-viral syndromes. And we see other kinds of airlodanlos is associated with it, which is probably more common, and, and then we probably realize once we start looking, we, it's there. Um, and then other autoimmune things, maybe the older demographic, Sjogren's, We've done some research and publications Sjogren's that's more than just dry eyes and dry mouth and dry skin causes neuropathy and can lead to POTS, celiac, we mentioned, and a lot of chronic aftermath disease, chronic health issues. And then sometimes we'll see people post-pregnancy, we'll see people with a lot of life events, a subgroup, a lot of life events we're looking into, so adverse life events. And then there might be some things like we call susceptibility. Why some people versus others? We'll look at some people, person A, person B, why person A? What is it about that person? We'll see sometimes clustering in families. That's probably a great research question. Why that person? I'm sure you have some strong opinions, but what about some of the biases and misconceptions of POTS patients? You know, it's interesting. I think my medical students, I help run the neurology clerkship, and we have a lot of medical students on the floor. I think they say it best. They come up here and they mean well. And they go, yeah, I hear a lot about these POTS patients. And they come up here and they go, they're actually really nice and very engaged and very involved um, in their care and very motivated. We have a whole sort of care package with education appointments and we get them exercising. And they really are involved. They're very involved in being educated. And they like information, our demographics. They love information. I think it's hard when, you know, the autonomic nervous system is everywhere in the body. It does eye secretion, pupils, mouth, digestion, bladder, blood pressure, skin. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. So these symptoms can be everywhere for the people, everywhere. And they feel fatigued. They don't feel well. So it can be an overwhelming experience when people come to a clinician. And we are limited with time. And so these patients can be overwhelming, I think, partially for a healthcare system that often doesn't have much time and we're limited. I think also there's an issue sometimes not enough neurology education in the healthcare system. You know, not everyone has enough neurology practice and their training to understand how to approach these patients. I think we're often still thinking that shortness of breath, chest pain, raising heart rate is always cardiac and not thinking it could be a neurologic process. And I think sometimes there is still, if someone's coming in saying, I'm dizzy, I'm lightheaded, I'm chest pain, and I'm fatigued, and I can't function, we, we, we might still think it's anxiety. And maybe if they're feeling bad, and they're anxious, and they're feeling anxious because they just don't feel well. There's a little bias always going to the anxiety card too quickly. Do we have any idea what the lag time is between patient symptom onset and diagnosis of POTS? So that's a great question. I mean, there's a lot of um, sort of patient experiences and some data out there, three to five years, many per physicians, six physicians. There's a lot of this data out there, which is 
you know, you as a neurologist know that with other neurologic conditions like migraine, that later people intervene and treat it, it can impact how people do. And that's why sometimes I think it's fascinating. These COVID POTS patients were seeing them, you know, I had, I was a normal person or, you know, functioning, had COVID, got POTS and were seeing them four months into their symptoms. It's fascinating to see how these people sort of putting this fire out, you know, helping them earlier is a fascinating concept. Well, I uh, thank every day for you that you have a real interest with these patients. You know, it really requires uh, somebody to have an interest and want to listen to patients. So what's your initial approach with these patients besides just actually taking a really good history and exam? Well, you're very kind. I mean, I'm not much different than you are. I think any neurologist, we, we love a good story and that by doing an exam, the exam comments story. So I think neurology honors what being a doctor is about. So I, I just think it's just, our work is just incredible every day. It's just a pretty neat journey, a great way to spend our days. So I think getting these people answers and, and there's such a neat thing about neurology, about pattern recognition. When you start really following these patients, all the stories often seem very similar. You know, I would, most of them have had something a tipping point. We do these group appointments on Zoom with these patients and we call timeline where they notice this day when everything's changed. We do this teaching point where everything's evolved and changed and then this cascade of symptoms. So I call it working with these patients. I call it the ease with them, the ease, like the letter E, educating them. Once they're diagnosed, we believe in educating these patients, really getting them educated because a lot of people nowadays are on social media. They come with a lot of sometimes, but the time they come to us, they've been to many medical providers. They're often confused. We do a lot of work educating them through these Zoom appointments, educational process. We have a patient liaison that works with us. We really educate our patients, really try to get as much tools. We empower them. Um, we, we try to use a medication if we need to, like a beta blocker to control these adrenergic symptoms. Iverdine, if you have low blood pressure, we use a flutricorazone or midrodine. Try to find what works for them. So we use education, empowerment. Empowerment in a sense to get them feeling confident with after education to start doing things. All the typical orthostatic self-care of hydration, salt if needed, uh, compression stockings, mindfulness work, learning how to sort of handhold their bodies and, and brain to feel less adrenaline, sympathetic tone and then really exercise their mind, body, and spirit. We get our patients exercising. We really try to get our patients exercising. We know that exercise helps. Going back to where you started again, that astronauts who had orthostatic intolerance disorders, the treatment is exercising. Even now, exercising the astronauts is a big part of the deal in space. We really get our patients moving. Do all these patients need tilt table testing? You know, I'm very big about people having tilt table testing. That's a great question. So you can imagine these are often young people. These are young women, many of them. Um, there's a lot of times they have diffuse symptoms. They have a predilection of bias against them. Often they have high care needs. They might need some medications that require insurance hurdles. Um, having this sort of testing to have this objective data that shows this for them now long-term is helpful for confirming diagnosis, make sure you're not missing anything else. 
and really care planning long-term. It really does help. And what about tests for small fiber neuropathies, sweat tests, biopsies, those types of things? You know, I, I think it's being an academic center like the clinic, and we have all those things really at our fingertips and just down the hallway where I am. We might order it more. I think use your clinical judgment. We actually have a project we're doing, and our people are coming to our department. 27% of patients might have small fiber neuropathy. You know, what do you believe? You know, the exam, which has relevance, you know, the skin or biopsy and the cues are, are important data. You know, that could be confirmatory, but we actually have patients, Glenn, who might come to us who have POTS, and then they might then also have gastric motility disorders, and they might fail Schimmer's tests, but then their QZR and skin biopsies are normal because that testing might be too distal, the QZR and skin biopsy, to miss it. And what do you believe? You believe those testing, they're more core organ involvement. So, you know, you know, nothing's been standardized yet for the absolute for small fiber neuropathy. Maybe there needs to be a scorecard for some of these autonomic disorders, symptoms, neuro exam, you know, low blood pressure, skin color changes, composites Q-Zard, um, skin or biopsy. We were looking at the corneal confocal microscopy as a preliminary study, the densest nerve plane of the body as another additional test. You know, really, these patients might need a composite of testing to really show an autonomic disorders of to show small fiber neuropathy. And in terms of your exercise, aerobic, anaerobic, resistance, combinations, doesn't matter. I think I, lo- I love your last sentence. These people feel so poor. They feel so flu-like, so run down. I think some of the best examples, some of these COVID POTS patients in the 2020 phase, they got covid and then a few weeks later, they got POTS. They kept going to the ER thinking they had COVID again. It's how flu-like these people can feel. We start people wherever they are, just getting their bodies moving. In a chair, laying down, we get them moving their body. We'll do chair yoga. We'll do Tai Chi. We'll give them Qigong. We start at that level. So really just simple body range of motion. Then we'll get people to a more aerobic exercise or a combat bike you know, and then from there, if they can, treadmill, um, and then from there, weights, really getting people going. We'll have people start maybe five minutes a day. Some people are so debilitated. We'll have them just, you know, just look at a video, just really getting people starting that slow. It can take people up to a year, some of our patients, to get up to 15, 20 minutes on a recumbent bike. And what about the COVID POTS patients? Different phenotype? It's interesting. We knew we were going to see something. And I thought we're going to see like because of viruses, could be viral toxin. I thought we're going to see a lot more neuropathy, positive skin or biopsies, QZARTs. We have some research we're doing, something's at the AAN. Not as much nerve destruction, but much more this more hyperadrogenergic pot state we've been seeing. It's almost like these people who are having it, it's like their bodies are in a sort of very stressed physiologic state and it was fascinating how they all started coming in in the fall of 2020 and it was much more high heart rates and sometimes their blood pressure would shoot up in a very hyper adrenergic state and is it self-resolving or what's it doing well you know it's a great i love your questions um it's it's you know 
one of the challenges are we're going to do a research project. One of the medical students are we have a registry. And these people have been through a lot. You know, they've had social determinants on them, health insurance issues. They lost their jobs. They've some of these patients had virtual appointments. They got their testing. So they've been all over the board with us. And we're going to sort of thumbprint them and then track them where they are in terms of return to function their quality of life scores, you know, their autonomous scorecards and see where are they. I know where a lot of them are, the ones I follow more closely. A lot of them done well with beta blockers, mindfulness work. We're going to show you how to control your adrenaline, handhold your body and brain, show it how it can be not in a stress state forever. Show it mindfulness, wellness, get them exercise. I know we've done with our patients, but it's going to be interesting because these patients who went through this phase, like all of us culturally, had this major upheaval. And a lot of them had just grabbed the healthcare when they could get it. Well, Rob, as I mentioned at the start, I love the fact that you're so passionate about this field because my experience with these patients is that that's what they need, right? It's a puzzle. Uh, like a lot of neurologic disorders, you know, but it's easy for me to look at a scan and there's a, you know, when you used to do neuro-oncology, there's a tumor in the right frontal lobe. Uh, it's pretty obvious. You have to look a lot deeper. So, you know, we appreciate every day what you're doing. Uh, but I think it's just good to just remind everybody that we all just go back to the basics, take a good history, do a good exam. And that probably really tells us the majority of times what these patients really have. We do the confirmatory test, but we probably know. Exactly. Well said. So appreciate your time today and look forward to uh, interacting with you again in the future. Thank you very much. I appreciate you, Glenn. You're a good man. This concludes this episode of Neuropathways. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash neuropodcast or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from experts in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute on our ConsultQD website. That's consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash neuro, or follow us on Twitter at CLEClinicMD, all one word. And thank you for listening.